today we're going to be at the end of Mark 12, so I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark 12. We're going to be in verse uh, 35 through 44. It will be up on the monitor and we'll read that in just a few moments. A while ago, I read an article by a Christian writer named Zach Hunt, who wrote a blog outlining the 10 reasons why Jesus probably would be an outcast in today's church. He cited how Jesus denounced violence, and we don't always do that, how Jesus didn't neatly fit into either a conservative or a liberal camp, and how he was homeless. His point was that the church in America has defined success differently in some ways than the Lord did when he was here. And he said that he sees widening gaps between Jesus' theology and the church, which represents him today. What else? He said that Jesus was anti-materialistic and didn't preach how God wants us to be rich. He cared less about what people believed and more about how they lived He loved the wrong kind of people, embracing those who even now the church struggles to love. And lastly, one of my favorites, he said, you know, Jesus just wasn't always a very nice guy. The writer said being nice has somehow become a prerequisite for being a Christian. But being nice, as we know, is not the goal of the Savior. Being truthful Offering grace as he is telling people to go and sin no more, yes. But Jesus was not afraid to have people hate him. And in many ways, American Christians are deeply afraid of opposition to the faith. What do you think? Would Jesus be welcomed in the church today? Then we wonder, well, what if Jesus walked into our doors? What would he see? What would he call us out for? How is it that he would be honored by our worship? It reminds me of the old joke about the person who was praying and telling God that the church they visited treated them horribly. And God said, well, don't worry. I haven't been welcome there for years. (laughs) Ouch. In the scripture that we read today, Jesus is still in God's house. He has come to Jerusalem amidst great fanfare. Remember, he has driven the moneylenders out of the temple. He's been accosted by the religious leaders who want to know, who are you really? Why are you here? What's your agenda? What are you doing? And he's reasoned with them and he's given them parables that had very uh, sharp points to them. He's wanted them to understand God's authority. And in his last interaction, he underscored the most important commandment. That we are to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind and love our neighbor as oneself. And after this, Mark records that no one dared ask him any more questions. They cannot break him, so they go away for now. And in these few minutes of peace, we see what Jesus wants to say and what he wants to do in the temple. And while we read this, we understand that we should expect always that when we come into worship that Jesus is here. That he is ready to show us who he is, to warn us of danger, and to affirm the pure of heart among us. So, hear the word of the Lord from Mark 12, 35 through 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, How can a scribe say that Messiah is the son of David? 
David himself, by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how can he also be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. And he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Next week, we're going to talk more in depth about the temple. But for today, let us remember that the temple was the center of worship, Jewish worship, in Jesus' day. While it was meant to be a place where the transcendent presence of the Lord Almighty dwelled among his people, its existence was conceptualized and kept alive by Israel's kings. It was planned, built, cleansed, hoped for, kept alive, and rebuilt by those who ruled Israel. It was also desecrated and used for evil under certain other rulers. But under every king, the temple was an ideal symbol of the larger narrative of Israel as a free, strong nation who were assured of victory against their enemies as long as the Lord was with them. So as the nation went, so did the temple. And although God did not ask for it, it stood as a bridge between he and the Israelites, a sacred place where they could seek him, where he took delight in those assembled there. It was a place for gathered community through the ages of religious, cultural, and national identity. So to have Jesus in the temple is truly a mind-boggling reality because we think about how many generations of faithful people sought the Lord and here he is, indwelling in the place where so many prayers had been answered, where generations of people had offered sacrifices, been offered forgiveness. And when he drove out those who were selling, he was acting with the divine right that belongs to him alone. Because he has been trying to tell them something, that he is the king, that they should recognize this was his house. And soon he is going to change the whole system. In great simplicity, Jesus proceeds in kind of everyday fashion. First, he brings a teaching. He's a rabbi. People are delighted by his wisdom and what he's saying, says Mark. And he asks them a difficult question. It's easy for us, of course, to know the answer. But think about how this would have been in real time. He gives them a little bit of a riddle. Quoting Psalm 110, he says, How can the Messiah be David's son, and his Lord. I picture them kind of looking around to see if anyone was going to answer. Don't you hate the feeling of being in a class and having no idea what the answer is and what the teacher's looking for? Now, Jesus is wanting them to think through what is happening right before their very eyes. 
And I was thinking, this is a great reason for us to come into God's sanctuary. That God has something to say to you and to me every time we worship him. It's been noticed by scholars that when Jesus teaches in the temple, he comes closer to revealing his identity than when he is teaching publicly anyplace else. This would make sense. There is great power. The Holy Spirit is with us when we are together to seek him. But Jesus is giving a different kind of teaching than the scribes have been giving them. The Messiah is not going to be a nationalistic savior. He's not going to be simply a new king who wants God's blessing, who is flawed and susceptible to a limited viewpoint and bound, bound by the thick structure that was broken and corrupt and people were unwilling to change it for the better. And the people were incredibly tired of tyranny and a government they can't trust. How great would a new king be? They want to be rescued, but we know that a human ruler only lasts so long. And a human ruler is not what they need, which is often the case with human rulers. So the people look to David's rule. They look back there. They look to uh, when David was king as a golden time of Israel. And we think to ourselves, ah, How often do we want to go back to a time that we thought was better, to a time personally in our lives that we thought was great, or to a time in a different period of history that we idealize? But do we know what we're asking for? Because whenever we say that we want to go back to a different era, we have to remember there were different issues that were painful and depressive in every single era. And whatever we don't like about the time that we live in, or wish could be different, isn't going to be solved by a time machine. In David's rule, there was a lot of war and a lot of bloodshed. And because of his personal issues, like having nine wives and countless concubines, it created a lot of problems when the royal transition time came because his family was so fractured and it led to chaos and division and a lot of harm for Israel later on. So perhaps it's a good lesson for us to consider how we can't turn back the clock. And we really don't want to spend a lot of energy wishing for a time we wish would come back. Because the world is designed to move forward. Jesus is wanting the people to see how God is moving them forward to a future where he has planned. He is there with them right now. And that's such an important thing also for us to remember Because Jesus knows what's going to happen to them personally and to them corporately. He knows that in a few days, he is going to be put to death. They're going to have to decide who he is and what's going to happen. He knows with us what it is that we're going to face today and in this week. He knows what we're afraid of. He knows all the things that are happening. And when we meet him in worship, it's an opportunity for us to say, Lord, we trust you. We can't always change our circumstances, but Lord, change us. How is it that we can walk with you more hand in hand in the things that you have planned for us? How is it that we can look to you for a greater future that you have instead of wanting something that maybe wasn't so great really in the past? You see, we want to celebrate what happened in the past. We want to learn the lessons. We want to carry the good sacred traditions. But there's so much work that God is calling us to accomplish in these days. And if we're stuck in the past, we surely cannot do that. God is moving us closer to the end of the age. And he wants us to be paying attention to the signs and teaching that he's giving to us. 
So Jesus here is just getting to the core of the matter. He wants them to trust him, to know him as God. So the question we might ask ourselves is, how is he showing us who he is today? As you have been worshiping this morning, as you have been seeking him, as you have been listening to the word, there has to be something that the Lord has said to you. So, Lord, please make us ready for what comes next. Secondly, Jesus gives them a warning. It made me think about the alert that went off on my phone earlier this week when the rain was coming down. It was, bah, bah, bah. So they should hear the resounding, bah, 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 as he's talking. Danger, beware, watch out. With just a few words, Jesus is saying, look at your leaders. Look at who they are. And he denounces the teachers for using their position to promote themselves instead of serving. So let's talk about self-promotion for a second. What is it about us as humans that make us want to leverage our power for even more advantage? Why do we think once we have power that we have license to take even more? We could talk about high-profile leaders in any area, in business and politics and the church and sports and entertainment, who use their power to get rich or take advantage of others. You see, the scribes wanted something more than they had. And when they got into the position of greater power, they took it. Fear? Greed? They're owed something? See, Jesus is warning against those who long for deference and then use it for selfish gain. And he's telling people, God's not going to put up with this. There's going to be greater condemnation for them, greater judgment for those who misuse their power. So we understand this. But what are we to do? I think there are two good takeaways for us here. One, of course, is to listen to the warning. So when in our lives we see hypocrisy or opulence or self-promotion in the church, we should steer clear. Especially when we see these things in leaders. Sometimes it's so ridiculous that we laugh, but it's actually not really very funny. We read a few uh, months ago about a prominent pastor who told his congregation that they needed to buy him another new state-of-the-art airplane, his fourth, so that he could reach the world more effectively for Christ. Another pastor that he quoted said traveling on a commercial airline agitates his spirit because too many people come up and want things from him and want to be prayed for. And then he said, and I'm quoting, you can't manage that today, this dope-filled world, and get in a tube with a bunch of demons, it's deadly. You see, anytime we see something or hear something that sounds different than how our Savior taught, we have to pay attention and seek his discernment. Sometimes we are going to be called on to bring correction or speak truth into these kinds of things. But whatever we do, let's not fall for it. May we be people who do not follow the self-centered. Secondly, we ourselves have to guard against any way that we might be tempted to grab something that doesn't belong to us. This week at Senior Lunch, we found out that uh, although it is rude, 35% of us do this in public. Cut in line. 
because we want to get ahead. We want to have the best seats. We want to get food before anyone else. But it's the attitude that says we have to be first. That's the problem. So if we find ourselves exploiting some responsibility that we have been given for our own gain, instead of serving those that we've been called to help, then we better take a step back. Because it's not just the priests who are going to be called to condemnation and a higher accountability. Ephesians 4 says we are the priesthood of all believers, and we represent God. And so it is our job to be people of integrity and love and humility, and we have to stop and look at our own self-centered tendencies. Because all of us have them. So where is it that the Lord is calling us to look at our selfishness and maybe we should push other people to the front of the line and take the back. Lastly, Jesus sits down and watches people putting money into the treasury. And this leads to an affirmation. The temple treasury was located in the court of women, which was the first of the inner courts of the temple. It had 13 trumpet-shaped bronze chests, which were used to collect donations. They were narrow at the mouth, and then they were wide at the bottom, so they kind of looked like a trumpet. And each receptacle, of course, went to fund various daily expenses and sacrifices of the temple. Now, apparently, these offering boxes gave an opportunity for people to show how much or how often they gave. On any given day, there could be lines of people who wanted to show other people how much money they were putting in. And the sounds of the coin against the metal would have indicated how much money was being offered. So the givers that wanted to show off could make sure everyone knew by the sound of off the trumpets, which I thought was pretty symbolic. Anyway, now... Whether Jesus sees how much the woman puts in, or he knows supernaturally because he's God, doesn't matter. That's not the point. He knows, and so he tells the disciples to come over in a, did you just see that kind of moment? The woman woman puts in coins, which were possibly worth about a dollar to a dollar fifty in today's economy. Not very much. In fact, Jesus says she put in all she had, all she had to live on. And because of this, he says that she has contributed more than anyone else who was giving to the treasury that day because she gave out of her poverty and not her abundance. Now, there's a great contrast here that we don't want to miss between those who flaunt their importance and wealth and this woman who has literally just given her last dime. We have a God who celebrates giving in secret, who tells us to not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing, who reminds us to give without expecting anything back from the Savior. This is our God who celebrates a love for this woman that she has for him that has caused her to give big. And in a twist of irony, those who wanted to be famous, who wanted to be well thought of, are forgotten. And the one to whom no one noticed is remembered forever. Who is great, Jesus says. The person who shows their love for God with all they are. God sees the widows. God sees those that the church can easily forget. In Jesus' time, we know that widows were taken advantage of. He just has talked about this. That the scribes devour their houses because they're easy prey. And they couldn't get people of influence to listen to them or to help them. She's trying to honor the Lord. But she's in a rigged system that benefits those who already have a lot. So we lament the injustice. 
which made money off the poor then and now. And we celebrate her. But while we celebrate her, we also acknowledge that her poverty could have been as partially a result of those who weren't taking care of her. Those who weren't engaged, who weren't watching out for her. But God's eye was on her. And we celebrate his provision. But one of the things that just almost makes me weep is her deep love for her father. What Jesus observes in the temple is like there's a circus going on. The parading of the, of the scribes in their long robes and those who want to be seen in the front of the pews and those who pray long prayers just to be holy and the selling of the birds in the courtyard and the clanging of the money against the trumpets and ah, and in the middle of all of this going on, here comes this woman just quietly with a little bit that she has because she loves the Lord and she wants to give to him You see, this is the picture that Jesus ends with. And it's what we want to end with because it's where the goodness is. There's little for me to add because it's so beautiful. See, we don't compare ourselves to her, but we recognize that she has found her worth in God. And we ask Jesus, Lord, help us be true followers of yours. Or we don't wait until we think we have enough to give whatever it is that you want us to give. But we give all we have in thanks and praise to you. If Jesus walked in our doors today in human form, I hope we would recognize him and welcome what he has to say to us. I hope he would find us as he does here every Sunday, imperfect people who desire to know him more who use this time of worship to ask for his wisdom and to praise him and to see how it is that we can confidently go forth in his spirit and power. Jesus as an outcast in the church? No way. We are part of his body, not the other way around. And the truth is, he is always with us because the temple is now in our heart. His dwelling place is with his people, and wherever we go, he is there loving us and showing us how it is that we can serve him by loving others. Jesus rules in authority. He is our king. And while we wait for this part of his reign to be completed, we do what he has asked us to do, to gather in his name so we might hear him teach us and warn us and affirm us. Let's take a moment of silence before him. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.